Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff and I hate pineapple on pizza. And I'm Michael Ralph and I love pineapple on pizza. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today, we are drinking Troptimistic, a wheat ale with passion fruit and kiwi from the Sweetwater Brewing Company. This one does not look like beers I typically enjoy. But it's got a lot of smells going on to it. I'm catching, I'm catching a, a complicated bouquet of both beer uh, smells, but also some fruit smells. And, and I have enjoyed fruity beers. I do have that trend, so maybe I'll be impressed. Looking forward to finding out. What are we doing today, Examiner? Starting another school year with pandemic concerns rising again, it's important to address student mental wellness as a classroom goal. We read a national survey that asked students how they feel about school, both at the moment and as they remember it. The results give us concrete opportunities to support student wellness this fall. Later, we read a design-based study that evaluated a culturally sustaining approach to multilingual literacy. This example shows how to help students reach reading and content goals. Let's get started. Welcome to season five. I am excited to be doing another year around the sun uh, and reading research with you, Mr. Woodruff. Yeah, me too. For our first segment, we read High School Students' Feelings, Discoveries from a Large National Survey and an Experience Sampling Study. This was written by Julia Moeller, Mark Brackett, Zorana Ivcevic, and Ariel White. This is published in Learning and Instruction in 2020. I queued this paper because uh, many folks you included are going back to the classroom this month. And so trying to think about what can we do to meet students where they are and to provide the best and most relevant supports to what they need as we return to instruction, whatever that looks like. Um, and so I know mental health and wellness is something that's a high priority for you. It's something that I also think is important. And so uh, these, this study, and it's actually a couple of pieces of research that I saw roll across my feed together, were really speaking to some of the urgency of those considerations and specifically some of the things that we can do about it. And so, um, so I threw them in there. Kids spend 25% of their life in school, so how they feel about it probably has some consequences. So how do they feel about it? Let's find out. Yeah, that was like literally their opening line was they spend a lot of time in school. Uh, and the um, one of the things that they pointed out was that a lot of the existing research, what, it, what does what is out there, which is scant, uh, focuses narrowly on a pretty specific emotion. You know, are students feeling anxious as we as we operationalize it? So broad looks across all of the emotions as they define them could look. Uh, just don't really happen very much. And so that was a big attempt for their, for their study was to get a really good, really large sample size across the nation and give students an opportunity to tell us how they feel rather than having us put narrow limits around the language they could use to talk about it. Yeah, we're not giving them a menu of emotions and having them select which ones they identify. We are asking them, how do you feel? Uh, and then... They do some follow-up where they say, well, let's compare those two to each other and, and, and see uh, if there's consistency in those answers. So it was actually quite big. They asked a lot of kids a lot of questions. 
there really is a lot to get into if you want to deconstruct the methods and approach to the this paper uh but i think for the takeaways and the interesting discussions we don't really need to there i mean unless mr stats has things to say about interesting things they chose to do you put the caveat of interesting things in there so no i don't think I have. okay so they had a huge national survey that was really open and easy to access and easy to share you could get on social media and so there was really like we're not we're not really controlling for bias here we're just kind of putting it out there self-select all you want kids can do it or not some schools advertise some organizations advertise anybody can answer this they had about twenty thousand people telling us how they feel in school and then they had another study where they had asking specific high schoolers in five high schools how they feel and they were kind of comparing the results and that was a cool follow-up study because their question was if we've got this really big sample and we get some some results especially uh, amid the pandemic uh, how replicatable are those results going to be and so they were specifically saying if we do a more narrowly focused sampling procedure um can we replicate, do we replicate the same kinds of findings that we're getting across this larger convenience sample, um, which tells us something about whether what they're seeing is real or not. So that was a really nice pairing of studies, I thought. And so one of the comparisons that I thought was actually useful, because it's something that makes me um, re-examine how I approached questions in my classroom, was the difference in what you find between if you ask somebody, how was that thing? after the fact, how do you remember it? How did it make you feel versus how are you feeling right now? Because there's a, there's a pretty important difference between what you might think of as your remembered self. Like what, what do I think about me as I have existed over the course of all of the past? But there is some distinction between that and who I am right now. Like the, the self that emerges in this moment talking to you, Mr. Woodruff, and that, that those differences actually have an impact on what you would measure. Yeah, so just to say it quickly, if you ask, if, you know, asking someone, hey, how do you feel right now while we're in the middle of this lesson versus how did you feel last Tuesday in the middle of that lesson, you're going to get, you're, you're sometimes going to get different answers. And the, in this case, asking students, how, how do you feel about school versus how do you feel right now in school? Um, the research has shown, and they saw in these results, uh, that you're more likely to get negative answers if you ask them how they remember it versus if you measure it like while they're in school. And that there, there, there are a suite of reasons why those might be, and those were kind of beyond the, the boundaries of what this study was trying to explain necessarily. But you say, how, how did you feel about school? And you get a preponderance of negative responses, right? I, was, I feel anxious, I feel bored, I feel whatever. Um, but if you ask them in the moment, it's not 100% doom and gloom in the moment. Now, there's, it's, so it's worth unpacking, why do they remember it that way? But it's different than saying everything is terrible all the time in school. We have to unpack why are they remembering it more badly? What are the cultural influences? What are the biases that are that are highlighting those negative experiences? And so they're trying to get a, a handle on specifically within the confines of pandemic teaching. What what are they remembering? It is mostly negative. Uh, and then that gives us a chance to talk about why that might be. A lot of the... Um findings are kind of what you'd expect but there were a, a, a three that showed up over and over again and that was uh tired stressed and bored 
yeah, if if yeah, if I'm gonna if we're gonna if we're gonna if we're gonna distill this down to the shortest possible summary, I would say our high schoolers are tired, stressed, and bored. Which uh, first, I posted some snarky information on social media about that when I got to that section because uh, tiredness is not something that has historically been considered when looking at emotional research, like the emotional states of students. Um, because you would get you would get a lot of researchers who say that tiredness is like a biological state rather than an emotion that somebody feels. And they're like, but when you ask students how they feel, they say tired, and it happens so often. We need to look at that as an emotional state. Yeah, uh, that's. I thought that was super great because when if we have been doing nothing but giving them a menu, then we have been limiting their expression of how they experience the world to our frame and our definition and we can go ahead and say tired is not an emotion fine but whatever tired is is so overwhelmingly ubiquitous and influential to their experience that they must communicate it somewhere and they're choosing to communicate it in terms of emotion and feeling so it may not be an emotion and we can go ahead and continue to operate it but like What's your favorite color? Dying. That's kind of how I'm interpreting this. Like, we're asking them for emotion, and they're telling us about a lower Maslow state that is not being met. It's so overriding their emotional state. Like, I am tired. Well, and something else that I was thinking about in this in this analysis was um, the disconnect between how we use language. Because language is not a monolith. Like, what, how I use language is informed by my lived experience and the people with whom I am proximal. And that's one of many ways that you could be using what we would, what we would you know, academically call English. And then there are like lots of other languages that we could also use. And so the language frame matters here. And so maybe how I as a researcher have historically defined tired is not the same thing as what tired means to that 15-year-old who is answering on this survey. And so it's entirely plausible to me that if you had a chance to sit down and unpack what tired means in context from what these high schoolers are saying, yeah, it might be an emotion. Like they're not saying the tired that you say. They're saying the tired that they say, which we have very little research on. And so if we get into what tired means for high school students, that might be a rich emotional state that has not been well described because that use of language has only been around for a handful of years. This paper asks them, how do you feel directly? And it gets their language, which is great. And I'm glad that this paper did this. This, this is pushing, pushing our, our, this is pushing some, some frontiers here. And now we have to ask, okay, well, what do they mean when they say that, right? That's sort of a next step follow through. What does that mean? Yeah, we need to follow through with that. Um, but tired could also just mean tired because that obviously has impacts on their emotional states. It makes me think of um, makes me think of hangry. That's what it makes me think of. Or like I have small children at home, and so Addie, are you feeling tired? I yes, it is informed by whether or not she needs sleep. But I don't ask that question when she's happily reading a book. I ask that question when she is in a state of emotional distress that includes like, yes, she is sad, but is it just sadness? Because you don't, you're not laying on the floor screaming 
because you finished reading your book and you wanted there to be more pages. You don't do that when you're not biologically tired. And so it's a specific emotional state that is informed by your biological state, but it's not, it is an emotion. It's important. And these authors unpacked a lot of it because sleep deprivation of high schoolers matters and we read we read that even not that long ago like that was a part of i think last season's research yeah was the um the impact that we can have on letting high schoolers sleep teens are experiencing sleep deprivation uh and that contributes to depression higher incidence of car accidents and higher incidence of suicidal thoughts and i want to really um highlight that because i independently did some stuff i looked at the cdc as of June 11th of 2021, so right now, the top three causes of death in teenagers in the United States is car accidents, suicide, and homicide. So if sleep deprivation contributes to depression, car accidents, and suicidal thoughts, that is a direct you know, link to how teenagers die in the United States. And if you want to know more about this, including some of the research that Lawrence is citing, uh, episode 50, we talked about it five months ago. Uh, The second segment was research on start times, and we've got some more of these references and more of that discussion. So they're tired. And they're stressed. Yeah, they report being stressed a lot, a lot of the time. What was the stat on that? How 80%! 80% of the time, our students are feeling stress. Turns out, when you're trying to learn amidst a global health crisis, you're going to stress about it a little bit. I, yeah. Yeah. I, we're, we're doing our best to make it not be an environment in which people are getting sick and dying. And let's not put a fine point on this. Stress is bad, okay. Uh, it contributes to uh, harm to your psychological well-being. It impacts brain structures. It makes you more susceptible to illnesses, infection, depression, heart disease, and suicide. All like stress is bad. The uh, and so f- for me, what that really underlines, you know, even further is as I'm imagining if I was in a classroom right now, is you know, especially if I was teaching like an AP class, right, where we've got. We are here to productively struggle. It's going to be hard. We're going to get better. And we've got high, high goals, right? We're going to, we're going to go get it. Is to remember when I tell students, like if I am inclined to tell a student, buckle down, it's going to be hard, but you got to toughen up. I got to realize they're already having to toughen up a lot. Yeah. And so I need to be really judicious about how much additional stress I'm going to be piling onto onto the students. And I need to be really thoughtful in how I talk about what I expect from them in their experience of and navigation of that stress. Yeah. If what you're doing in the classroom contributes to student stress or lack of sleep, then reconsider. Uh, Potentially do less. We're not asked, I'm not, I don't think you should lower your expectations for the quality of work that you have them produce, but having them, loading them down with more work than they can do while maintaining nine hours of sleep a night is going to do more harm for them as a holistic human being than academically good. Um, we can give less homework. 
You have that power. We can de-emphasize the importance of standardized tests. You can do that. If you are telling them the tests are important and they really matter and you have to make this a priority, then they're going to see those tests and their performance with increased anxiety and stress. So being thoughtful about even how we frame, you know, there are school districts right now, there's a school district, I think it's in Georgia, that's on a two-week suspension of operations across the district because of the widespread need for quarantining. How we frame that for students also matters in how you were describing. Like, I can choose to not say, you have to read 150 pages in these next two weeks, otherwise we're going to be behind and we're going to fail the AP exam, even though it's only August. Because I could just as easily also say, we got two weeks to quarantine, be safe, take care of each other. And we'll see you when we get back. And we're going to make as much growth as we can. But it's you're doing your best and I see you. And... Another thing is that we do have professional responsibilities, right, to make decisions to promote the cognitive growth of our students. And sometimes uh, we're in situations that are not ideal. Like, I would want to teach in this environment like this, and we can't, and we are frustrated in doing that. And so I want to acknowledge there is a tension here because I'm not saying, and I don't think you're saying either, positivity forever just just good vibes in our classrooms that's not that's not what we're that's not what we're saying that's not what i'm saying you're shaking your head that's not yeah what that's we're about. not what i'm saying so it's this, that's that's not where where we're taking this but be thoughtful about how you frame what we're talking about with students that is what i'm saying so the uh because it does matter and that's one of the other studies that we queued up here it's uh, a recent meta-analysis published in a journal uh, the jama journal of pediatrics showed that right now based on the studies that have come that are coming out right now during the pandemic, adolescent depression and anxiety is double, oh. double pre-pandemic levels. It was bad then. One in four adolescents are reporting depression, one in five reporting anxiety across this meta-analysis of many studies. So we are we are we are seeing elevated levels of depression and anxiety. Yeah, there was another aspect of this that I thought was very interesting because they mentioned in their discussion section that the uh, there's some national trends that are different when you do international comparisons. And I'd like to talk about that a little bit. Uh, I see you, Australian listener, Spike. The United States has a culture of lauding the phrase busy. And so we sometimes feel we sometimes talk or think or interact in a way that having a full plate with little time flexibility is some kind of a virtue and we we talk about it that way not just for ourselves as adults but also to our kids and some some of our high schoolers fill all of their absolutely uh, uh possible free time with as many responsibilities or opportunities or or uh, obligations as possible. And that busyness very quickly can contribute to both stress and sleep loss. And so if busy is considered, so we're seeing other nations, the kids aren't, the high school kids aren't reporting as much stress, but maybe the United States is a problem where we systemically value busyness as a virtue and then it has these other consequences with this have effect well why is why is the United States you know 
35th in math. I just made that number up. But well, if we're loading them with stress, it's going to have consequences to academics. So if we say busy is a virtue and then we complain that we're not being academic enough and then we meet that need by increasing the busyness of the kids, we're in this really, this, this is a problematic cycle. This isn't, if busy is a social ideal and it contributes to stress, we need to challenge that societal norm. And, and that's, they kind of hinted at that in in the discussion section and i am that that has really affected me as one of my stronger like pivot moments in this paper for me as a as a human um so just just for the juxtaposition i want to then draw attention to the third big theme which is boredom mm-hmm. so we've got this issue of stress that is so very likely connected to, at least in the United States, a business business culture. Although there are many sources of stress right now, we got we got plenty. That's true. Um, Double. But then they're also reporting being bored, and so it begs the question, especially with with how much um, interrupted instruction has happened over the course of the eight, last eighteen months. Um, whether that be um, emergency online instruction, that be hybrid approaches, that be um, disrupted in-person approaches with socially distanced mechanisms and reduced opportunities for extracurriculars and whatever it is, there are many reasons why instruction has not proceeded the way it has in the past. And so students are reporting that they are bored. How are you bored in all of this? Teaching should thread the line of promoting engagement without contributing to unhealthy stress. Because the, the paper does draw a line between healthy stress and unhealthy stress, uh, productive stress, you know, being challenged in a manner that engages you versus um, responsibilities for things that you don't care about, but you have to do. Otherwise, you'll get some penalty. How do we be engaging to combat that boredom while not contributing to unhealthy stress? It's a very difficult line, and I don't have simple answers to that. But boredom is a double-edged emotion. It can promote disengagement when students do not have autonomy, but self-directed exploration when students do have autonomy is fueled by boredom. It makes me think of uh, one of the first studies that I did in the position that I hold now as a full-time researcher. It was talking with teachers uh, about their experiences in this early pandemic condition. And the trouble with pivoting to some of the new instructional parameters, it was only, we only were seeing ways to do what I'm going to call basic instructional techniques. Like I can assign vocabulary sheets online just as well as I can do it in my classroom because just the mechanics of doing that are, are, I understand them versus doing a robust, you know, student driven project in my classroom. That was hard, but I figured it out. I don't know how to do that online yet. And so the things that they were seeing were were generally pretty surface level exercises. And I think that that's something that we need to take a close look at in whatever circumstance you're in right now. And I'm not ignorant of the fact that we are still under pandemic conditions. I can read a graph. And so we're all doing our best and I'm sensitive to that. But if we're all we're doing is saying, how do I fill this time? And I, have, I can fill this time with a worksheet. I can fill this time with a vocabulary list. I can fill this time by assigning reading that I then give them a quiz on tomorrow. Yes, you have successfully filled the time and we are busy, but that is not engaging. And there's a difference. So being thought about, maybe I'm not sure how this is going to look online, but if I, if I take a leap 
and offer some time or some opportunity for students to be bored in a productive way, then we can get back some of that engagement, some of that, some of that intrinsic motivation that was so key to a successful classroom in the before time. Listen, plan, and play. For our second segment, we read Facilitating Culturally Sustaining Functional Literacy Practices in a Middle School ESOL Reading Program, a Design-Based Research Study. This was written by Christina Cavillaro and Sabrina Simbiante. This was published in Language and Education in 2021. Uh, so I, I queued so many papers for this second segment, and I know that you don't watch the show notes before the day of, but uh, this topic cycled through maybe three or four different topics. And so I was looking through my feed, um, just reading, you know, the open literature, just swimming in the ocean to just see what I could find. Looking at some of the recent roundups of research on, I'm going to air quotes and say learning loss. Uh, because I don't want to frame it as a deficit, but not being in classrooms with teachers at their best matters. Yeah. I don't want to pretend that what happens in a classroom doesn't matter. And so there are certainly consequences for students having the experience they did with regard to academic progress the last 18 months, rather than what we would have expected them to have three years ago. And so that, that matters. And we've seen that in some of the quantitative measures. And I think that some of that difference is probably real. And so in those conversations, some of the biggest differences are predictably in language development and in math development. And we've done a fair amount of math instruction, just, just periodically it comes up. And so uh, looking at what we can do to do a better job of supporting language development, reading and writing development with students was something that I thought was worth looking at again. And if we're going to help students develop with regard to language usage, uh, I want to do it from a position of epistemic disobedience. And so that's where we landed. Um, my district has made a decision in terms of reading efficiency of our students and their estimation of who is and who is not rating, reading on what has been deemed grade level has caused a significant um, change in uh, the schedule of our schools that I, I am typically used to, we would have in the past an advisory period once a week with our students. We now have an advisory period with our students every single day, 40 minutes of our class of our, of our period of our, of our typical schedule has been reallocated to an advisory class, and this time, the primary purpose of this time is to allow students who are no, not reading at grade level to be pulled outside of the advisory class and given reading intervention instruction. This idea that the consequences of the pandemic has hit our students' ability to read, and we have to directly um, prioritize that uh, at the cost of many other things is truly something educators are uh, facing now. Well, and so for me, the, uh, like, neglecting other things 
in the name of the proxies we use to major a portion of all student development is a mistake. Yeah. I just, that's where I put my flag. Um, but being especially cognizant of where we can do our very best to get the most from a developmental benefit standpoint for what we do do, it was worth doing three years ago. Let's keep doing it now. And so uh, if we are concerned with student progress in reading and in math, then I can, as a professional, allocate my attention in how I develop to do the very best work that I can with regard to helping students develop their ability to read and their ability to do math. Yeah. And that's where I'm at with queuing this paper. So, so this paper is specifically focusing on, focusing on the experience of developing readers um, who are also emergent bilinguals, or I'm going to use the phrase multilinguals. And so that's talking about, in their, in their sample, it was students who speak Haitian Creole, students who speak Spanish, and they are learning to speak English concurrent with everything else that they are learning. And so the importance of approaching that work from a standpoint of culturally sustaining practice uh, so that you could be more effective in helping them develop both their ability to read and write and also their understanding in content. Because from a standpoint of middle and high school teachers, we've got, they, these students have been matriculated to the point where they are being expected to read and write as a mechanism to learn content. So if we neglect the support that we need to offer them in developing an understanding of working in the multiple languages that these students speak and their ability to read and write and communicate in it, then that is going to impact their, their development of competency in the content domains for which you are responsible. And so what's a way that we can approach that that is culturally sustaining because it's more effective and it's more just is kind of the question that they were approaching as they designed this, this, this different approach to curriculum. It was a design-based research study, which I think is super cool. Uh, when I read it, I was kind of in my head putting it next to like action-based research in that they went and they looked at what's currently going on in the classroom. And they said, what can we design from a curriculum standpoint that might be a more effective way to do what's happening in the classroom? Let's help the teachers do this thing we have designed and then let's reflect on whether it was better and if so, how. And I really liked that, that, that working loop. Not only did they spend time identifying what's going on in the classroom they spent time uh, meeting the students in the classroom and uh, understanding the students in the classroom and their prior experiences and their cultures of origin and their uh their circumstances uh and so it was not just let's go see what the teacher does it's go let's go see what the teacher does and let's go know about the students and once we know about the teacher environment and the student environment and the student experience, then we will design something that, that the whole class can experience. Well, they had a narrative that stuck with me, and, I, and I'm sure that they gave this as a setting the stage type of a narrative where we have students that are primarily speaking two different languages. We have some students that have a French Creole. Was that right? I said Haitian Creole. Yeah, that's better. Uh, the teacher could speak French in addition to Haitian Creole. So we had a, a, a cluster of Haitian Creole students. We had a, a cluster of Spanish speaking students. And 
Um, the teacher also speaks Haitian Creole and they're going into the classroom. There's prompts on the front of the room in English about what they're supposed to do. And they've got textbooks and they have journals, which are sort of their body of work uh, and labor that they've done in the class. And they read the prompt, they review the textbooks, they answer the questions, they write in their journal. And when there are questions about what to do, the students are communicating with each other in their comfortable languages. Uh, and so there was, that, that's what was going on. And there was a difference between the behavior of the students that shared a comfortable language with the instructor and the students that did not share a comfortable language with the instructor. Though both groups were talking amongst themselves and switching between English and their comfortable language, uh, the, the cluster of students who did not share um, a language with the instructor heavily relied on a single individual in that group uh, to for clarifying questions about what is the task, what are we supposed to do, how do we get support, how do I proceed through this? And uh, the observers found that those students would copy responses from that that support that supporting student. Uh, so that group was getting um, less quality. Ah, quality is that the word? Uh, that group was getting less holistic support than the group that was sharing a comfortable language with the instructor. The, and the interplay between languages or the, the lack thereof was really an important theme that I thought I saw in the, in the initial description of the setting, uh, that uh, all of the formal work was centering English and English alone. And there was, a, there was a fair amount of informal or unstructured usage of uh, Haitian Creole and to some extent Spanish uh, with students to provide support, but none of that was was systematized. None of that was formally integrated or declared. It was all informally understood. Uh, but in my head, I read it as marginalized. Like it's all pushed to the edges of the classroom, and it was sort of ad hoc as as it happens. But everything that counts, air air quotes, everything that counts is expected to be in English, and that really limited what could even happen in English. That a lot of the stuff that was happening for the formal instruction were. Th- like what you would, what I would have imagined to be like formulaic worksheets, you know, cut and paste. Like you're not literally cutting, but like by hand copying words from this page to that page. And I'm not really engaging with the content, which is limiting my ability to understand what I'm trying to learn by reading and writing in addition to limiting what I can learn about reading and writing. And so uh, I, there were many things I wish that would be different as I was reading the description of that initial classroom. And so that was really what I interpreted to be the big takeaway. No, that's good. The, and so an important distinction in their application of culturally sustaining systemic functional linguistics or CSSFL was really leaning into centering the experiences of students and inviting them to participate in multiple languages so that everybody can better understand the content and then also the the important components of using even using reading and writing language uh, the elements of deconstructing text features and identifying key information and deciphering main points in various text types all of that gets better when emergent multilinguals can do it in a multilingual context And so they were leaning into, rather than marginalizing any language that is not English, centering multilingualism 
and then having explicit discussion and instruction around the components of linguistics that mattered for the class in addition to whatever content they were trying to promote um, for student development. And so they um, and so they actually did that. They designed some curriculum and actually did it. They asked the students to uh, construct a personal narrative about them moving to a new school, which is a common ground experience that all of them have had. So that is, is one thing that, that they start off with. Let's give, them an let's give them a common experience that we can all share together. We've all moved to a new school. And they asked them to first speak it, and they were authorized to use whatever languages they'd like. And this was a really significant degree of autonomy because the students are free to use the language that they're comfortable with uh, and they're free to push themselves and extend in the languages and use the words or, or contexts uh, that they can uh, develop. Uh, and they got those narratives. Yeah. And the, uh, one of the things that I saw and that I would want to be thinking about if I was considering doing work like this in the classroom was the really strong valence of the room early on in those activities where students weren't sure what to expect. They weren't sure about the norms of participation. They were kind of hesitant to even jump out there and share, uh, both from the personal nature of the content, but also like the new language expectations of the exercise. There was just, there was a, it wasn't resistance, but it was hesitance. It was a little bit of, um, of I don't want to say apprehension necessarily, but they just, they weren't sure what's this going to look like and what are we going to be expected and what's going to be the reaction. You know, when, when you're in an environment and you're afraid of getting things wrong and you're working in a language that isn't, that you do not have fluency in, you're going to get things wrong. And that's, that's a challenge. I want to tell, you know, I want to tell my story, but I don't want to get it wrong. I don't want to tell it wrong uh, is, is a, uh, I think a very human anxiety. Uh, but when you get the flexibility to tell it in whatever language you want, well, then you have opportunities to tell it right multiple ways. I can tell this part right in my familiar language, and I can also tell this part right in my developing language. And letting students choose, okay, I can, I can, I can masterfully say this in my developing language, and then I can tell this segment in my familiar language, and then I can switch back to my developing language for this part, and giving them the ability, not only does it allow them this flexibility of thought in creating the narrative, it also gives them uh, opportunities to self-assess how their use of language is uh, sufficient in one in their developing language, but not sufficient in this other area. And so there they are naturally identifying areas of growth in their developing language when they choose to revert back to their comfortable language. So it's, it's really great for a lot of reasons. There was something that was cool that was mentioned in their design that was when students were choosing to share their stories in um, in a language, in their preferred language, which was not English, and some students in the class didn't speak the language that the student was choosing to use. And so supporting students from a multilingual perspective to help them engage with that content, even though they don't speak uh, Haitian Creole or another student chose to speak Spanish and some of these students didn't speak Spanish and saying, okay, 
Well, all of us in here are working on learning languages, so let's work on the same things in this language that we would in English about identifying subjects and identifying actions. And like, this changes nothing. Let's all continue to engage in language learning, regardless of the language being chosen by the speaking student. Uh, the, so in their, in their reflection, the thing that I took away from, from what they thought about as far as revision into the future was that they actually want, would want to implement even more meta-languaging. Uh, and so even more discussion between languages and about language to explicitly scaffold instruction. When we say meta-language instruction, are we talking about like syntax and rules of languages and comparing rules of languages? Uh, they... So they talk about meta-language as being um, work to connect traditional labels and their language function, uh, so supporting students developing understanding of genre-specific linguistic elements. So, so how are we using language, and particularly between different use cases? And so this is relevant for, for you and I as science teachers. The way that I use English when I'm talking about a biologic topic, bi a biology topic, versus when I'm writing about a biology topic, versus when I'm just talking like in a colloquial sense about social subjects, uh, when I'm talking to Lawrence as a peer versus when I'm talking to a learner who is a high schooler, when I'm talking to a learner who is three years old, like the norms of how I use language is what I think of when I think of meta-languaging. Uh, language in context. Uh, and that makes sense because they focus on personal narrative and the rules of how to use language when you are giving a personal narrative, which is different than how you would use language when you are giving a persuasive position paper or to speech or a, a, a historical narrative or an informational text. I hadn't considered the complexity of that, but teaching foreign language within a personal narrative context seems to be... Uh, a wise decision as that is where we are going to intrinsically have the greatest import on the communication because we identify with what we're sharing. Like I transferred to a new school and that was an important experience for me. Uh, and that allows me to contextualize the new rules and the new language and the new vocabulary already within something that is important to me. Know your students. How was the beer? Oh my goodness! Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that I didn't enjoy this one. Yeah, not my favorite. That's that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Not my favorite. I uh, I didn't catch very much of the fruit that I thought I was smelling. Agreed. Uh, and it really was like drinking an IPA. I didn't think this was an IPA, but I experienced it like an IPA. Yeah, this doesn't have what I associate with a wheat, uh, a wheat brew. They they called it a wheat ale, and it does not. It it's it's no Blue Moon, uh, and um, which I guess I have identified as my standard for what a wheat ale is, and this isn't it, uh, and um, it. It calls itself, you know, it suggests on, on, on the, on the, uh, on the labels, it suggests that it's really malty. Am I, t but is, do I not know what malts and hop are? This seems super hoppy to me. I, I yeah, I, I, and I also might not know what those things are. So it wouldn't shock me for 
our beer vizier to, to correct me, but uh, agreed. It's no, I caught it as hops. Yeah. So this didn't taste anything like what I expected it to taste like it. It it's not sweet at all. Yeah. Like not at all. Yeah. This is, this is no, this is no cherry Fandango. (laughs) And I I wish that it was. (laughs) Thanks for joining us once again, as we start the the inaugural episode of season five, I can't believe we've been doing this for five years. I hadn't internalized that yet, but here we are. So thanks again for listening. This is better with all of you. So please chime in. If you've got questions, you've got comments, you've got papers you want us to read, you got papers you don't want us to read, or you have beers you think we should drink. This is better together, and we are so happy to be here with you once again as we embark, embark on yet another school year. We want to improve. So as we pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well.